13. I two fellow creatures before the winter was well over. Towards spring, however, the supply ran short, and only two more remained for him. He had now fasted two entire weeks, and looked hungry and eager. The keeper offered him a guinea pig, at which he took great offense, raising his head and hissing angrily for a long while. Eggs he declined, also a lizard and a rat, in great disgust. In India the Ophiophagi are said to feed on lizards and fish occasionally, but our Ophiophagus preferred to fast. At last one of the Turing snakes was produced, and Ophio was to be regaled. It was the 31st of March, 1876, and he had been a denizen of the gardens just one year. My notebook informs me that it was a lovely, soft spring day, and that Ophio was quite lively. He had rejected frogs on his own account but in the uncertainty of more ring snakes arriving, he was now decoyed into eating half a dozen. Holland contrived that the snake destined for his dinner should answer the purpose of a feast, and had allowed it to eat as many frogs as it chose, like the poor wretch who, doomed to the gallows, is permitted to fare sumptuously the last morning of his life. The ring snake ate three frogs, by which the Ophiophagus was to derive chief benefit, he, all unconscious of the cause of his victim's unusual plumpness swallowed him spadily. Soon after the Sapphire doffed his winter coat entire, and having again fasted for ten days, was at once rewarded by the last remaining ring snake in a similarly plethoric condition, namely, with three more frogs inside him. Now and then during the winter months the scarcity of ring snakes has compelled the sacrifice of some far rarer colubbers to Alfio's cannibal tastes, and yet each year we hear of hundreds of ring snakes being ruthlessly killed in country districts while at great cost and trouble others are purchased or brought from the continent for the hemadryad's sustenance. Lord Lilford, one of the Ophidarium's best patrons, sometimes sends presents of game in the shape of ring snakes to the hemadryad, while watching the snake-eater over his dinner. One is struck with the remarkable tenacity of life exhibited in the victim, or the slow action of the venom if poisoned in the first grasp. The Ophiophagus seizes it anywhere, that island at whichever part happens to come first, and then, after holding it quietly for a time, works his jaws up to the head in the usual hand over hand, or jaw after jaw fashion, invariably swallowing the snake head first. On one occasion when I watched attentively, Ophio, having seized a ring snake by the middle, held it doggedly still for one quarter of an hour, while the lesser snake did its very best to work its way out of the jaws, and also to fetter its captor by twirling itself over his head and coiling round his neck. This continued while Ophio, with his head and neck raised, remained motionless, and after the quarter of an hour commenced to work his jaws up towards the head of the ring snake, which, as more and more of its own body was free for action, twirled itself about, and at length coiled its tail round the bit of branch nailed into the cage, persistently, like a sailor making his vessel fast to the windlass, the ring snake lashed as much of himself as was free round the branch a foot off and so pulled and pulled till he looked in danger of severing himself in two. Meanwhile Ophio, slowly but surely advancing, caused its head and neck to disappear, grasping tightly with his venomous jaws, as if he would say, We'll see who is master. It was a close tussle. So firmly did the little colubber retain his hold on the tree, but as the upper part of him was gradually drawn into those unrelaxing jaws, he by degrees gave way, and by and by was gone. Not far short of an hour was occupied in this meal, during which the victim showed no signs of being poisoned, nor were his coils round the stump relaxed in the slightest degree, till Ophio reached the tail. The ring snake is not a constrictor, 
yet he thus tied himself round the tree by the coils of his tail. One more singular case of tenacity of life must be recorded. A ring snake had been caught in the usual way, and the usual struggle ensued between captor and captive. Colubber, with its head tightly gripped in the jaws of his enemy, had still all the rest of himself at liberty and in full activity, and after wriggling a violent protest, he coiled what was left of himself so closely round the neck of his persecutor that the latter made little or no progress with his dinner for a time. He seemed to be deliberating how to proceed next, and asking, What is the meaning of this? Then shook his head, lowered it to the shingle, and tried to rub off the coils. The only result thus achieved was that the extreme end of Colubber's tail was loosened for a moment, but only to coil afresh around Ophio's jaws, which nevertheless slowly and surely advanced. For nearly an hour the progress was very slow, but when the ring snake was nearly all swallowed except a few inches of tail, these became so tight a muzzle that Ophio in turn was the victim. Shaking his head and vainly endeavoring to free his jaws of this muzzle, a minute or two elapsed, during which he seemed to suffer some discomfort, when suddenly his mouth opened widely, and out crawled Natrix, apparently none the worse for this temporary entombment. He had turned round when two or three feet from daylight, and come back to see the world once more, but it so happened that Ophio closed his jaws in time over the few inches of tail which still remained between them, nor did he once relax his grasp of this but quickly and patiently began to work his way up to the head and recommence his meal, and this time with better success. An hour and a quarter I watched, nor was any evidence of poison seen, so as to reduce the powers of the bent snake, for bent it must have been in those prolonged and forcible grasps. In these conflicts one could but observe the dogged stupidity on the part of the venomous snake, who, had he but brought coils to his aid, might have simplified matters so easily. The little heterodons, and even the lesser tines, often assist themselves with coils in managing their prey, though not themselves constrictors, but the venomous ones had not the slightest notion of helping themselves in this way, as if confident that in time their venom would do its work. What worms do from the formation of vegetable mold, by Charles Darwin, we now come to treat of a curious and important subject, namely, the amount of earth which is brought up by worms from beneath the surface and is afterwards spread out more or less completely by the rain and wind. The amount can be judged of by two methods, by the rate at which objects left on the surface are buried, and more accurately by weighing the quantity brought up within a given time. We will begin with the first method, as it was first followed, near Mayor Hall in Staffordshire. Quick line had been spread, about the year 1827, thickly over a field of good pasture land, which had not since been ploughed. Some square holes were dug in this field in the beginning of October, 1837, and the sections showed a layer of turf, formed by the mat roots of the grasses, one to inch in thickness, beneath which, at a depth of 21 to inches or 3 inches from the surface, a layer of the lime in powder or in small lumps could be distinctly seen running all round the vertical sides of the holes. The soil beneath the layer of lime was either gravelly or of a coarse sandy nature and differed considerably in appearance from the overlying dark-colored fine mold. Coal cinders had been spread over a part of the same field either in the year 1833 or 1834, and when the above holes were dug, that island after an interval of three or four years, the cinders formed a line of black spots round the holes, at a depth of one inch beneath the surface, parallel to and above the white layer of lime. Over another part of this field cinders had been strewed, only about half a year before 
and these either still lay on the surface or were entangled among the roots of the grasses, and I here saw the commencement of the burying process, for worm castings had been heaped on several of the smaller fragments. After an interval of forty-three four years this field was re-examined, and now the two layers of lime and cinders were found almost everywhere at a greater depth than before by nearly one inch. We will say by three-four of an inch. Therefore, mold to an average thickness of dot twenty-two of an inch had been annually brought up by the worms, and had been spread over the surface of this field. Coal cinders had been strewed over another field, at a date which could not be positively ascertained, so thickly that they formed October, 1837 a layer, one inch in thickness at a depth of about three inches from the surface. The layer was so continuous that the overlying dark vegetable mold was connected with the subsoil of red clay only by the roots of the grasses, and when these were broken, the mold and the red clay fell apart. In a third field, on which coal cinders and burnt marl had been strewed several times at unknown dates, holes were dug in 1842, and a layer of cinders could be traced at a depth of 31 to inches, beneath which at a depth of 91 to inches from the surface there was a line of cinders together with burnt marl. On the sides of one hole there were two layers of cinders, at two and thirty-one two inches beneath the surface, and below them at a depth in parts of ninety-one two, and in other parts of one hundred one two inches there were fragments of burnt marl, in a fourth field two layers of lime, one above the other could be distinctly traced, and beneath them a layer of cinders and burnt marl at a depth of from ten to twelve inches below the surface, a piece of wasteland was enclosed, drained, ploughed, harrowed and thickly covered in the year 1822 with burnt marl and cinders. It was sold with grass seeds, and now supports a tolerably good but coarse pasture. Holes were dug in this field in 1837, or 15 years after its reclamation, and we see in the accompanying diagram figure 1 reduced to half of the natural scale, that the turf was 1 to inch thick, beneath which there was a layer of vegetable mold 21 to inches thick. This layer did not contain fragments of any kind, but beneath it there was a layer of mold, 11 to inch in thickness, full of fragments of burnt marl, conspicuous from their red color, one of which near the bottom was an inch in length, and other fragments of coal cinders together with a few white quartz pebbles, beneath this layer and at a depth of 41 to inches from the surface, the original black, peaty, sandy soil with a few quartz pebbles was encountered, here, therefore, the fragments of burnt marl and cinders have been covered in the course of 15 years by a layer of fine vegetable mold, only 21 to inches in thickness, excluding the turf. Six and a half years subsequently this field was re-examined, and the fragments were now found at from 4 to 5 inches beneath the surface, so that in this interval of 61 to years, about 11 to inch of mold had been added to the superficial layer. I am surprised that a greater quantity had not been brought up during the whole 211 two years, for in the closely underlying black, peaty soil there were many worms, if island however, probable that formerly, whilst the land remained poor, worms were scanty, and the mold would then have accumulated slowly, the average annual increase of thickness for the whole period is dot 19 of an inch, illustration, figure 1, section of the vegetable mold in a field, Drained and reclaimed 15 years previously, A. Turf, B. Vegetable mold without any stones, C. Mold with fragments of burnt marl, coal cinders, and pebbles, D. Subsoil of black, PD sand with quartz pebbles. Two other cases are worth recording. In the spring of 1835 a field, which had long existed as poor pasture, and was so swampy that it trembled slightly when stamped on, 
was thickly covered with red sand so that the whole surface appeared at first bright red. When holes were dug in this field after an interval of about 21 to years, the sand formed a layer at a depth of 3-4 inch beneath the surface. In 1842 i.e. seven years after the sand had been laid on fresh holes were dug, and now the red sand formed a distinct layer, 2 inches beneath the surface, or 11 to inch beneath the turf, so that on an average point to 1 inches of mold had been annually brought to the surface, immediately beneath the layer of red sand the original substratum of black, sandy peat extended, a grass field, likewise not far from their hall, had formerly been thickly covered with marl, and was then left for several years as pasture, it was afterwards ploughed. A friend had three trenches dug in this field twenty-eight years after the application of the marl, and a layer of the marl fragments could be traced at a depth, carefully measured, of twelve inches in some parts, and of fourteen inches in other parts. This difference in depth depended on the layer being horizontal, whilst the surface consisted of ridges and furrows from the field having been ploughed. The tenant assured me that it had never been turned up to a greater depth than from 6 to 8 inches, and as the fragments formed in a broken horizontal layer from 12 to 14 inches beneath the surface, these must have been buried by the worms whilst the land was in pasture before it was ploughed, for otherwise they would have been indiscriminately scattered by the plough throughout the whole thickness of the soil. Four and a half years afterwards I had three holes dug in this field, in which potatoes had been lately planted and the layer of marl fragments was now found 13 inches beneath the bottoms of the furrows, and therefore probably 15 inches beneath the general level of the field. It should, however, be observed that the thickness of the blackish, sandy soil, which had been thrown up by the worms above the marl fragments in the course of 321 to years, would have measured less than 15 inches, if the field had always remained as pasture, for the soil would in this case have been much more compact. The fragments of marl almost rested on an undisturbed substratum of white sand with quartz pebbles, and as this would be little attractive to a worms, the mold would hereafter be very slowly increased by their action. We will now give some cases of the action of worms, on land differing widely from the dry, sandy, or the swampy pasture just described. The chalk formation extends all round my house in Kent, and its surface, from having been exposed during an immense period to the dissolving action of rainwater is extremely irregular, being abruptly festooned and penetrated by many deep, well-like cavities. During the dissolution of the chalk the insoluble matter, including a vast number of enrolled flints of all sizes, has been left on the surface and forms a bed of stiff red clay, full of flints, and generally from 6 to 14 feet in thickness, over the red clay. Wherever the land has long remained as pasture, there is a layer a few inches in thickness of dark-colored vegetable mold. A quantity of broken chalk was spread, on December 20, 1842, over a part of a field near my house, which had existed as pasture certainly for 30, probably for twice or thrice as many, years. The chalk was laid on the land for the sake of observing at some future period to what depth it would become buried, at the end of November, 1871, that island after an interval of 29 years. A trench was dug across this part of the field, and a line of white nodules could be traced on both sides of the trench, at a depth of seven inches from the surface. The mold, therefore excluding the turf, had here been thrown up at an average rate of dot twenty-two inches per year. Beneath the line of chalk nodules there was in parts hardly any fine earth free of flints, while in other parts there was a layer twenty-one four inches in thickness. In this latter case the mold was altogether ninety-one four inches thick. 
and in one such spot a nodule of chalk and a smooth flint pebble, both of which must have been left at some former time on the surface, were found at this depth, that from 11 to 12 inches beneath the surface, the undisturbed reddish clay, full of flints, extended, the appearance of the above nodules of chalk surprised me much at first, as they closely resembled water-worn pebbles, whereas the freshly broken fragments had been angular, but on examining the nodules with a lens, they no longer appeared water-worn, for their surfaces were pent through an equal corrosion, and minute, sharp points, formed of broken fossil shells, projected from them, it was evident that the corners of the original fragments of chalk had been wholly dissolved, from presenting a large surface to the carbonic acid dissolved in the rainwater and to that generated in soil containing vegetable matter, as well as the humus acids, the projecting corners would also, relatively to the other parts, have been embraced by a larger number of living rootlets, and these had the power of even attacking marble, as Sachs has shown. Thus, in the course of 29 years, buried angular fragments of chalk had been converted into well-rounded nodules. Another part of the same field was mossy, and as it was thought that sifted coal cinders would improve the pasture, a thick layer was spread over this part either in 1842 or 1843, and another layer some years afterwards. In 1871 a trench was here dug, and many cinders lay in a line at a depth of 7 inches beneath the surface, with another line at a depth of 51 to inches parallel to the one beneath. In another part of this field, which had formerly existed as a separate one, and which it was believed had been pasture land for more than a century. Trenches were dug to see how thick the vegetable mold was. By chance the first trench was made at a spot where at some former period, certainly more than 40 years before, a large hole had been filled up with coarse, red clay, flints, fragments of chalk, and gravel, and here the fine vegetable mold was only from 418 to 438 inches in thickness. In another and undisturbed place, the mold varied much in thickness namely, from 61 to 281 to inches, beneath which a few small fragments of brick were found in one place. From these several cases, it would appear, that during the last 29 years mold has been heaped on the surface at an average annual rate of from dot to two dot twenty-two of an inch, but in this district when a ploughed field is first laid down in grass, the mold accumulates at a much slower rate. The rate, also, must become very much slower after a bed of mold, several inches in thickness, has been formed, for the worms then live chiefly near the surface, and burrow down to a greater depth so as to bring up fresh earth from below, only during the winter, when the weather is very cold at which time worms were found in this field at a depth of 26 inches, and during summer, when the weather is very dry, a field which adjoins the one just described, slopes in one part rather steeply this, that from 10 degrees to 15 degrees, this part was last ploughed in 1841, was then harrowed and left to become pasture land, for several years it was clothed with an extremely scant vegetation, and was so thickly covered with small and large flints some of them half as large as a child's head that the field was always called by my sons, the stony field, when they ran down the slope the stones clattered together, I remember doubting whether I should live to see these larger flints covered with vegetable mold and turf but the smaller stones disappeared before many years had elapsed, as did every one of the larger ones after a time, so that after 30 years 1871 a horse could gallop over the compact turf from one end of the field to the other, and not strike a single stone with his shoes. To anyone who remembered the appearance of the field in 1842, the transformation was wonderful. This was certainly the work of the worms, 
for though castings were not frequent for several years, yet some were thrown out month after month, and these gradually increased in numbers as the pasture improved. In the year 1871 a trench was dug on the above slope, and the blades of grass were cut off close to the roots, so that the thickness of the turf and of the vegetable mold could be measured accurately. The turf was rather less than half an inch, and the mold, which did not contain any stones, 21 to inches in thickness, beneath this lay coarse, clay earth full of flints, like that in any of the neighboring plowed fields, this coarse earth easily fell apart from the overlying mold when a split was lifted up. The average rate of accumulation of the mold during the whole 30 years was only .083 inch per year i.e. nearly 1 inch in 12 years, but the rate must have been much slower at first, and afterwards considerably quicker. The transformation in the appearance of this field, which had been effected beneath my eyes, was afterwards rendered the more striking, when I examined in Noli Park a dense forest of lofty beech trees, beneath which nothing grew. Here the ground was thickly strewed with large, naked stones, and worn castings were almost wholly absent. Obscure lines and irregularities on the surface indicated that the land had been cultivated some centuries ago. It is probable that a thick wood of young beech trees sprung up so quickly, that time enough was not allowed for worms to cover up the stone with their castings, before the site became unfit for their existence. Anyhow, the contrast between the state of the noun is called, stony field, well stocked with worms and the present state of the ground beneath the old beech trees in Noli Park, where worms appeared to be absent, was striking. A narrow path running across part of my lawn was paved in 1843 with small flagstones, set edgewise, but worms threw up many castings, and weeds grew thickly between them. During several years the path was weeded and swept, but ultimately the weeds and worms prevailed, and the gardener ceased to sweep, merely moving off the weeds, as often as the lawn was mowed. The path soon became almost covered up, and after several years no trace of it was left. On removing, in 1877, the thin overlaying layer of turf, the small flagstones, all in their proper places, were found covered by an inch of fine mold. Two recently published accounts of substances strewed on the surface of pasture land, having become buried through the action of worms, may be here noticed. The ref, H.C.K. had a ditch cut in a field over which coal ashes had been spread, as it was believed, 18 years before, and on the clean-cut perpendicular sides of the ditch, at a depth of at least 7 inches, there could be seen, for a length of 60 yards, a distinct, very even, narrow line of coal ashes, mixed with small coal, perfectly parallel with the top sward. This parallelism and the length of the section gives interest to the case. Secondly, Mr. Dancer states that crushed bones had been thickly strewed over a field, and, some years afterwards, these were found, several inches below the surface, at a uniform depth. Worms appear to act in the same manner in New Zealand as in Europe, for Professor J. von Host has described a section near the coast, consisting of mica schist, covered by five or six feet of loess, above which about twelve inches of vegetable soil had accumulated. Between the lowest and the mold there was a layer from 3 to 6 inches in thickness, consisting of, cores, implements, flakes, and chips, all manufactured from hard basaltic rock. It island therefore, probable, that the aborigines, at some former period, had left these objects on the surface, and that they had afterwards been slowly covered up by the castings of worms. Farmers in England are well aware that objects of all kinds, left on the surface of pasture lands, after a time disappear, or, as they say, 
work themselves downwards. Hot powdered lime, cinders, and heavy stones, can work down, and at the same rate, through the mat roots of a grass-covered surface, is a question which has probably never occurred to them. The sinking of great stones through the action of worms, when a stone of large size and of irregular shape is left on the surface of the ground, it rests, of course, on the more protuberant parts, but worms soon fill up with their castings all the hollow spaces on the lower side, for, as Henson remarks, they like the shelter of stones, as soon as the hollows are filled up, the worms eject the earth which they had swallowed beyond the circumference of the stones, and thus the surface of the ground is raised all round the stone, as the burrows excavated directly beneath the stone after a time collapse, the stone sinks a little, hence it island that boulders which at some ancient period have rolled down from a rocky mountain or cliff onto a meadow at its base, are always somewhat embedded in the soil, and, when removed, leave an exact impression of their lower surfaces in the underlying fine mold. If, however, a boulder is of such huge dimensions, that the earth beneath is kept dry, such earth will not be inhabited by worms, and the boulder will not sink into the ground. A lime kiln formerly stood in a grass field near Leaf Hill Place, in Surrey, and was pulled down 35 years before my visit. All the loose rubbish had been carted away, excepting three large stones of quartzo sandstone which it was thought might hereafter be of some use. An old workman remembered that they had been left on a bare surface of broken bricks and mortar, close to the foundations of the kiln, but the whole surrounding surface is now covered with turf and mold. The two largest of these stones had never since been moved, nor could this easily have been done, as, when I had them removed, it was the work of two men with levers. One of these stones, and not the largest, was 64 inches long, 17 inches broad, and from 9 to 10 inches in thickness, its lower surface was somewhat protuberant in the middle, and this part still rested on broken bricks and mortar, showing the truth of the old workman's account, beneath the brick rubbish the natural sandy soil, full of fragments of sandstone, was found, and this could have yielded very little, if at all, to the weight of the stone, as might have been expected if the subsoil had been clay, the surface of the field, for a distance of about 9 inches round the stone, gradually sloped up to it, and close to the stone stood in most places about four inches above the surrounding ground, the base of the stone was buried from one to two inches beneath the general level, and the upper surface projected about eight inches above this level, or about four inches above the sloping border of turf, after the removal of the stone it became evident that one of its blunt ends must have first have stood clear above the ground by some inches, but its upper surface was now on a level with the surrounding turf. When the stone was removed, an exact cast of its lower side, forming a shallow crateriform hollow, was left, the inner surface of which consisted of fine, black mold, excepting where the more protuberant parts rested on the brick rubbish, a transverse section of the stone, together with its bed, drawn from measurements made after it had been displaced, is here given on a scale of 1 to inch to a foot figure 2, the turf-covered border which sloped up to the stone consisted of fine vegetable mold, in one part seven inches in thickness, this evidently consisted of worm castings, several of which had been recently ejected, the whole stone had sunk in the thirty-five years, as far as I could judge, about eleven to inch, and this must have been due to the brick rubbish beneath the more protuberant parts having been undermined by worms, at this rate, the upper surface of the stone, if it had been left undisturbed, would have sunk to the general level of the field in 247 years, but before this could have occurred, 
some earth would have been washed down by heavy rain from the castings on the raised border of turf over the upper surface of the stone. Illustration, figure 2. Transverse section across a large stone, which had lain on a grass field for 35 years. 8a. General level of the field. The underlying brick of rubbish has not been represented. The second stone was larger than the one just described, viz. 67 inches in length, 39 in breadth, and 15 in thickness. The lower surface was nearly flat, so that the worms must soon have been compelled to eject their castings beyond its circumference. The stone as a whole had sunk about 2 inches into the ground. At this rate it would have required 262 years for its upper surface to have sunk to the general level of the field. The upwardly sloping, turf-covered border around the stone was broader than in the last case, viz. from 14 to 16 inches, and why this should be so, I could see no reason. In most parts this border was not so high as in the last case, viz. from 2 to 21 to inches, but in one place it was as much as 51 to. Its average height close to the stone was probably about 3 inches, and it thinned out to nothing. If so, a layer of fine earth, 15 inches in breadth and 11 to inch in average thickness, of sufficient length to surround the whole of the much elongated slab must have been brought up by the worms in chief part from beneath the stone in the course of 35 years. This amount would be amply sufficient to account for its having sunk about 2 inches into the ground, more especially if we bear in mind that a good deal of the finest earth would have been washed by heavy rain from the castings ejected on the sloping border down to the level of the field. Some fresh castings were seen close to the stone. Nevertheless, on digging a large hole to a depth of 18 inches where the stone had lain, only two worms and a few burrows were seen. Although the soil was damp and seemed favorable for worms, there were some large colonies of ants beneath the stone, and possibly since their establishment the worms had decreased in number. The third stone was only about half as large as the others, and two strong boys could together have rolled it over. I have no doubt that it had been rolled over at a moderately recent time, for it now lay at some distance from the two other stones at the bottom of a little adjoining slope. It rested also on fine earth, instead of partly on brick rubbish. In agreement with this conclusion, the raised surrounding border of turf was only one inch high in some parts, and two inches in other parts. There were no colonies of ants beneath the stone, and on digging a hole where it had lain, several burrows and worms were found. That Stonehenge, some of the outer druidical stones are now prostrate, having fallen at a remote but unknown period, and these have become buried to a moderate depth in the ground. They are surrounded by sloping borders of turf, on which recent castings were seen, close to one of these fallen stones, which was 17 feet long, 6 feet broad, and 281 2 inches thick. A hole was dug, and here the vegetable mold was at least 91 2 inches in thickness. At this depth the flint was found, and a little higher up on one side of the hole a fragment of 